Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 9, The Vandals, part 1. Look, I tried to come up with an interesting and engaging title, but nothing jumped out at me for this one, okay? I'll do better next time. Besides, Vandals, part one. Simple, straightforward, easy to remember. Last time, I promised to explain why there were Germans in North Africa, and what they had to do with Attila the Hun's relations with the Romans. And I will, eventually. This episode is going to be introducing the Vandals the specific group of Germans who would eventually end up in Africa, and describe the roundabout route they took to get there. This shouldn't take as long as it did for the Goths, because so much of the groundwork has already been laid. Going back to talk Vandals also gives me a chance to talk about some aspects of Germanic life that I missed in those episodes about the Goths, so the first part will be narrative, the second will be some interesting stuff or facts or theories or educated guesses, about what life was like in North Central Europe 1,800 years ago. Should be fun. May end up being a collection of digression, but at least there'll be interesting digressions. I also have a small correction, which is probably silly for me to worry about, but it's been bugging me. Way back in episode 1, I mentioned a battle between the Romans and Goths under the leadership of Neva at a place that I'd called Barrowy. In my defense, that's what it looks like to an English speaker. But, turns out, it is in fact pronounced Varia, because it's Greek, and my first guess about Greek words is never right. Anyway, it's a small thing, but I felt the need to mention it. Still not sure about the pronunciation of Neva, though. We will not be talking about the Huns today, or about the staggering arrogance on display from the Romans when they decided to ignore that treaty they had signed with Attila after getting totally waxed by him. Well, maybe we will a little bit, we'll see. What we are talking about today is a tribe that has been popping up here and there on the edges of the story since the beginning. It's time to bring the Bandals fully out on stage. So, back into the time machine again, to head back in time. Ready? The Vandals don't have a great ancient historian in their corner. There's no Vandal Jordanes making an effort to transmit the ancestral tale of his people, So in terms of origins and early events, we have to depend on Roman sources, which are not necessarily sympathetic or accurate, and archaeology, which is vague and hard to interpret. Just like with the Huns. What that means is that just about every statement I'm going to make in the next few minutes should start with, it seems that, and end with, but we can't know for sure. It is clear that the Vandals and Goths have been neighbors since the beginning. Both spoke Germanic languages of the Eastern branch, and the few remaining snippets of Vandalic make it appear to be very similar to Gothic. You may remember from way back that the Goths probably originated in Sweden and crossed over to the Pomeranian shore of the Baltic Sea. The Vandals are believed to have arisen just next door, along the shores on either side of the Kattegat, that strait that separates modern Denmark from Norway and Sweden. Place names are often used for this kind of historical reconstruction, and we find clusters of names probably related to the Goths in southeastern Sweden, and similar clusters relating to the Vandals in southwestern Sweden, southern Norway, and the northernmost tip of the Jutland Peninsula. 
This kind of linguistic evidence, though, is very difficult to interpret and subject to all kinds of academic debate and caveats, so we're not going to go and wade any further into that. <clears throat> but it gives us a starting place, an Urheimat, to use a loaded and archaic term. At some time in the 2nd century BCE, for reasons unknown, the Vandals began to move from those Scandinavian homelands southward into the interior of Germany. They settled in the lands between the Elba and Vistula rivers, along the Oder. The first mention of the Vandals in a Roman source is in Pliny the Elder's Naturalis Historia, which makes them the earliest attested East German tribe. In that work, they are grouped together with the Burgundians and the Gutones and a few other tribes. The Gutones, I failed to mention, are thought to have been the ancestors of the Goths, though the Romans didn't make that connection at the time. Later sources use the names Vandili and Lugi nearly interchangeably. It's possible that the Vandals were a constituent of a confederation known as the Lugi, possibly bound together by a shared devotion to a pair of twin gods called the Elk Brothers, but all of that is extremely conjectural. The Vandals were separated into two broad tribal groups, known as the Hasdings and the Silings. Those tribal designations probably existed all the way back in their Scandinavian homelands, with the Hasdings believed to carry the name of a royal clan of Norway, and the Silings name relating to the island of Zeeland in Denmark, which is Sheeland in modern Danish. But again, etymology makes this all just very educated guesses. Their arrival in Central Europe more or less coincides with the appearance of that archaeological complex I promised to tell you about, and that I have since learned how to pronounce just for the occasion. The Pshevosk, P-R-Z-E-W-O-R-S-K, named after the town in Poland where the most important finds were made. That culture seems to have slightly predated the Vilbark culture of the Goths, and was gradually displaced southward by it. As it moved, it picked up influences from the existing Celtic, Laten, and Yastorf cultures, finally settling in two separate sections that maintained cultural contact with each other. The Goths also encountered and incorporated bits of the older Celtic cultures that they encountered. I just didn't talk about it at the time, because, well, Iron Age Europe is complex and mysterious. It may be that the Vandals were high-status members of the Lugian Confederation, and that internal conflicts led to a separation with the other East German groups. Both the Goths and the Langobards, who we will be talking about later, trace important parts of their ancestral foundation myths to battles in which they throw off Vandal domination. Whether these struggles were part of the Macromanic Wars or a separate conflict isn't clear. There's also confusion about where the Vandals stood in relation to the Romans in those wars. A historian called Peter the Patrician records that the Hasdings allied with Marcus Aurelius against the Marcomanni, while Eutropius lists the Vandals among the tribes defeated by the philosopher-emperor. It's possible that both are correct, and that different clans or sub-tribes of the Vandals took different sides in those complex and very destructive conflicts. Either way, the Macomanic Wars brought the Vandals into much closer and more frequent contact with the Roman Empire. After the war, the Hasding Vandals settled on either side of the northern Carpathians and around the headwaters of the Tisha River under Roman protection, though they were bound by treaty to keep their settlements at least 40 stadia from the borders of the Roman Dacia. That's about four and a half miles for those of you not up on your Roman surveying techniques, and which, honestly, catch up. Be better, people. 
The Siling Vandals remained in the lands further to the north, along the Vistula and Oder rivers, concentrated in modern Moravia and Silesia. Now you might be thinking, Siling Vandals, is that why it's called Silesia? Unless you're thinking, where the heck is Silesia? In which case, check the map that I will probably link to this episode, I hope. <sighs> Briefly, Silesia is a historical region, mostly in southwest Poland, which is today centered around the city of Wroclaw. But that question lets me mention another thing that I should have brought up earlier. I told you it was going to be the digression episode. If you asked a German historian about the Siling Silesia connection, especially a 19th century one, he would say, absolutely, Silesia, named for the Siling Vandals. If you were to ask a Polish historian, he would say the region is named for a river and a mountain, Slesk, and that those names are derived from the old Polish word Sleg, which means wet or damp. The names are similar in just about all of the surrounding languages, so whatever the source of the region's name, it's very old. But this kind of nationally oriented historical debate is an issue that we'll run into from time to time when we're talking about these early Dark Ages, or, or the Migration Period. The German historians of the 19th century were very keen to construct a history of the Germans as a world historical force, on par with the Romans, and so tended to emphasize a heroic version of the movements of all the various tribes, as well as unity among them that clearly did not exist. Slightly later, Slavic historians had similar goals, and all through Central Europe, where the German and Slavic populations have bumped up against each other, you can find these kinds of com competing interpretations. I am not qualified in the least to weigh in on this particular one, and it is ultimately irrelevant to the story anyway, but it's something to be aware of. The first round of really serious historiography of the migration period took place when the romantic and nationalistic projects that all European countries were engaged in in the 19th century, and that led to some arguments that were ahead of the evidence. The ongoing project of today's historians has been to correct some of those overstatements. Vandals seem not to have participated in the great Gothic invasions of the 3rd century, and were generally quiet through the first half of the 200s. It's possible they were dealing with their own conflicts with their Gothic neighbors. We can see in the archaeology around this time a severe contraction of the Przeworsk culture in the east, as it's replaced by the Chernyakov culture, which is associated with the mature Goths. But we have to be careful not to read too much into changes like this, as a change in material culture does not necessarily mean a political or tribal change. It could just be that contact between two cultures results in an adoption of some cultural practices and material, like pottery techniques, while tribal identity remains unchanged. Think of it this way, with a linguistic version. I personally watch a lot of British television, and as a result I have a habit of calling the part of the car that covers the engine the bonnet and not the hood. That's an element of British culture that I have adopted, it does not imply my transformation any, into anything other than the ugly American that I am. Similarly, the presence of one style of pottery rather than another does not necessarily mean the village where it was found has recategorized itself as Gothic rather than Vandal or any other ethnicity. It might just be they like those pots better. That being said, there are Roman sources that mention battles fought by the Hasdings and the Gepids against the Tervingi and the Typholi with the Gothic side gradually gaining the upper hand over the Vandals. 
In the 270s and 280s, Vandal fighters took part in a few raiding expeditions into Roman territory, usually as part of coalitions with Burgundians or other tribes. Some sources list Sarmatians as their partners, which doesn't make an enormous amount of sense geographically. It's possible the Romans confused the Vandal cavalry for Sarmatian cavalry, as their kit would have looked similar, and the Vandals used horses in war way more commonly than other German tribes. The inevitable defeat of those raids resulted in the expected treaties, and Vandal units began to serve in the legions. Some of them eventually rose quite high in the ranks. I think I mentioned Stilicho before, played by James Purefoy. He was of Vandal descent. The world was changing around the Vandals, though, in the 4th century. At some point, Christianity made its appearance north of the Danube and spread among the Vandals, probably through Gothic contacts and perhaps active missionary work. As a result, the Vandals adopted Arianism like their neighbors, which would lead them into conflict with the Romans later. It's probable, as historian Torsten Jacobson notes, that the theological differences between the Arian faith and the Roman Orthodoxy were too subtle to be of much interest to your average Vandal warrior. But being an Arian became part of the Germanic identity that set him apart from his Roman counterpart. In the broader world of Northern Europe, a process of consolidation was underway, as a long-standing collection of small tribes was coalescing into larger and more powerful coalitions. The tribes on the Upper Rhine became the powerful Alemannic Coalition, along with the Thuringians and Bavarians, while those of the Lower Rhine became the Franks. In the north, the Chaussi became the Saxons, and in the far northern ancestral lands of Scandinavia arose the Jutes and the Danes. All of this put pressure on the smaller population of the Vandals, who were already dealing with the increasing power of the Goths to their east. But, of course, none of this compared to the convulsion that arrived, riding pillion on the horses of the Huns. Speaking of the Huns, I have another digression, and this is as good a place for it as any. You remember that huge single payment of 6,000 pounds of gold that Attila demanded and received in 443? I had said that that amount of gold would be worth around $130 million today, but that's a terrible way of comparing the currency value. Instead, I fished around for some better data on wages and currency, and here's what I came up with. A common soldier in the army at the time of Theodosius cost the empire about six solidi, or gold coins, per year. There are 72 solidi per Roman pound of gold. So the lump payment made to Attila in 443 6,000 pounds of gold was equivalent to 432,000 solidi, enough to pay 72,000 soldiers for a year. So that puts the scale of the thing in a whole different perspective, doesn't it? I cobble all that together from a few different places. More than anything, it should give you a good idea of how hard it is to compare the two wildly different economies of the late empire and the post-industrial economy of today. Nigh on impossible. I mean, $130 million in gold is a lot, but it's not paying thousands of soldiers for a year today. Anyway, long story short, I did some math. The domino effect triggered by the Huns' defeat of the Tervingai brought new pressure on the Vandals, as well as new partners. The Elans, you may remember, were an Iranian people who had been pushed ahead of the Huns along with everyone else. They seem to have been everywhere in this period, and very clearly not working with a unified agenda. When the Vandals made the decision to seek refuge inside the empire, 
driven probably as much by food shortages as by fear of the invaders, a large group of Alans traveled with them. The alliance seemed an odd one given the wide ethnic and linguistic gulf between the two, but it would last in some form or other for the next generation. Maybe they bonded over a shared love of horses. The Great Coalition left their homelands around 400 and moved west. They entered Roman Pannonia and plundered across the territory. It is unlikely they had any particular goal in mind other than finding safety and sustenance, and their route was probably determined more by the road system than any strategic consideration. That incursion moved through Pannonia up the Danube, through Noricum and Raetia, which is Austria and Switzerland, before moving out of the empire along the east bank of the Rhine. In the process, the Alans and Vandals had acquired new members, both from inside and outside the empire. Disaffected peasants and escaped slaves joined the migration, just as they had the Goths in Moesia, and as they shifted course northward, the Germanic Suevi joined in as well. Roman sources claim that the Vandals were led in their migration by a king called Godegisel, but it would be a mistake to see the movement as a coordinated army with a singular goal. It was made up of a collection of dozens and maybe hundreds of clans and sub-tribes, each with their own priorities and leadership. It would have been impractical to try and move such a huge group altogether anyway. The logistics of feeding a crowd of hundreds of thousands was simply out of reach, not to mention fodder for the horses and other animals. Instead, foraging parties formed from the few population units and went out looking for provisions for their families. These parties probably numbered in the hundreds and maybe the larger ones a couple thousand, and so we may hear of the Romans encountering one of these parties and defeating the Vandals, I hope you heard the air quotes, and that victory having no effect whatsoever on the movement or overall numbers of the larger collective. Without land to farm for themselves, the three tribes had to keep on the move. That probably more than anything else is what kept them all together. Raiding in any one place could only supply them for so long. Nonetheless, movement was slow, and it took six years to make it to the bank of the Rhine. The Roman border defense system had adapted in response to the Gothic raids of the previous century. Rather than trying to stop barbarians at the frontier, the border forts would alert local commanders, who would mobilize the highly mobile field armies, which are mostly cavalry-based at this point, to come and meet the threat. The border forts would then prevent retreating invaders from leaving Roman territory with all of their stuff. This worked because, in general, the tribes were not very talented at siegecraft, and so would bypass the forts rather than wasting time trying to take them. But by doing so, they left a series of strong points in their rear. So I'm sure you can see the problem here, though. The Roman defense strategy depended on strong, well-led, mobile field armies capable of responding to threats within their area of operation. There were a limited number of threats that could be handled at once, and if a commander pulled troops from one theater into another, like, say, Stilicho did, to assist him against both Alaric and Radagaisus's Goths, and in service of his own various power moves, the garrison troops would be left unsupported and completely unequipped to meet incursions of any size. So it was when the combined groups of Vandals, Alans, and Suevi arrived at and crossed over the Rhine in 406. Numbering in the hundreds of thousands, there was nothing the border guards could do, and messages were sent out to the landowners of Gaul, arm yourselves, 
because you're going to be on your own for a while. In Stilicho's defense, he had reached an agreement with the Franks of the Lower Rhine to assist in the border defense and the Burgundians in the Upper Rhine for the same thing, and the Franks did fight at least one battle with the oncoming Vandals. That battle is actually a little bit funny in the sense that we don't really know who won. A passage in Gregory of Tours' History of the Franks records that the Franks and Vandals fought a great battle in 408, in which thousands of Vandals were killed, along with their king, Godesegel, only saved from total destruction by the arrival of Alan allies. But Erosius's history, which was written much closer to the event, and which wasn't sponsored by a Frankish king, records a defeat for the Franks in that year, though it appears that Goda's eagle was killed either way. It's possible that two different battles took place and the chroniclers confused or conflated them, or it could be that Gregory was just happy to recount a Frankish action as a victory without too much concern about accuracy. The sheer weight of numbers of the oncoming mass meant that ultimately it mattered very little. St. Jerome is considered a reliable source for the Vandal sack of Gaul, even though he was writing all the way away in Jerusalem at the time. He was impressively well informed through a vast correspondence network. He mentions Mainz as the first town sacked by the three tribes, so that's where we usually place their crossing point. They, from there, they fanned out across Gaul. The garrisons were completely outmatched when there were garrisons at all, and many towns simply fell with no preamble. And the nobility, who had the option of simply leaving Gaul, had very little incentive to defend the common people of the region. So Gaul, which had been under Roman protection since the days of Julius Caesar, suffered. The commons' willingness to go over to the invaders' side was frequently noted by contemporaries. A priest named Salvian wrote in The Government of God that, quote, Meanwhile, the poor are being robbed, the widows grown, orphans are trodden down so that many, even those of good birth and have enjoyed a liberal education, seek refuge with the enemy to escape death under the trials of the general persecution. They seek among the barbarians Roman mercy, since they cannot endure the barbarous mercilessness they find among the Romans. End quote. Content aside, I imagine Salvian pushed back from his desk and took a little sip of self-congratulatory wine on that last line. The list of cities that Jerome says fell to the invaders is simply a list of important towns in Roman Gaul. Worms, Speyer, Strasbourg, Metz, Rheims, Amiens, Angoulême, Arles, Toulouse, and many others. Coin hoards found across France can be traced to this time as families sought to hide their valuables from the pillage and were unable to return for them for one reason or another. Partly in response to this chaos and partly for his own advancement, a commander in Britannia named Constantine, who you may remember from episode 5, was acclaimed as emperor by his troops and set sail across the channel to put Gaul to rights. He abandoned the Britons in the process, of course, but omelets, eggs, etc., we call this man Constantine III, as he did win grudging recognition from the government in Ravenna for a little while, as he pushed the Vandals south and made new agreements with the Franks and Burgundians. You might remember further that Stilicho commissioned Alaric the Visigoth to help him against Constantine, once it was determined that that couldn't stand, and it was this agreement that ultimately led to Stilicho's downfall. With Italy distracted by its own internal problems, and Alaric, 
Constantine pushed to add Spain to his domains. He sent two generals to attack and defeat the legions loyal to Honorius, but they did very little to cover the passes of the Pyrenees, and the Vandals Alans and Suevi took the opportunity to leave Gaul and move into the rich and lightly defended territories of Hispania. The barbarians probably moved there to get, avoid getting caught in the increasingly heated civil conflict that was breaking out between Constantine's forces and Honorius's slash Stilicho's forces. They would have found the country easy pickings. Spain had been part of the empire since Republican times, and it was and it was as far away from the volatile frontiers as it's possible to be. There were rich mineral deposits, good farmland, especially along the Ebra River, and excellent ports facing the Mediterranean. Settling there must have seemed like a golden opportunity to the Vandals, and circumstances were for the moment in their favor. This episode has been short on personalities, I know, but next time I will remedy that as I introduce the ruler who would eventually become the Amenals Gris of Mediterranean diplomacy, Geyseric, king of the Vandals and Alans. But I promised at the top of this episode that I would talk a little bit about life in the Vandals' old homelands. And lest you think that's not really re relevant at this point, the lifestyle of the people left behind in Central and Northern Europe changed very little even after the migrations. So this can give us a bit more context for future events in later episodes. So, most Vandal settlements seem to have consisted of relatively isolated cluster villages, surrounded by fields that had been laboriously cut out of the woods. The Germans had adopted crop rotation techniques by Roman times, which meant that villages could remain occupied and productive over multiple generations, evidenced by large, long-used cemeteries. The eastern tribes, including the Vandals, also controlled the lucrative trade routes from the Balkan Sea to the Mediterranean, which is known as the Amber Trail. What was the major product that moved along the Amber Trail, do you think? The Germans controlled the middle section of that route, which brought amber, but also furs, timber, and human hair for wigs, interestingly enough, from the Baltic tribes of the north down to Italy, and sent the luxury goods of the empire back in return. Technology and culture also flowed northward along those trade routes. Roman-made goods are then found in vandal graves, though only in the graves of the wealthy. Romanness apparently did not penetrate very deeply into Vandal society, and the vast majority got along just fine with the things that they could produce for themselves or trade for locally. Local crafts included pottery, though the potter's wheel wasn't introduced until the 3rd century, and Vandal smiths were talented in both iron and bronze, with weapons production being highly respected, and finally made bronze brooches a frequent find in burials. The Vandals waged war against their neighbors, but these were mostly small affairs like cattle rustling and minor border disputes. Large-scale wars were rare. When he was out fighting, the Vandal warrior was more likely to be mounted than most of his German cousins, and primarily used the lance and a straight sword which had been adapted from the Roman spatha. Bows were used mainly for hunting, and small projectiles in general don't seem to have been a part of Vandal tactics, even much later in their history. Unlike Gothic burials, Vandals did provide weapons for their dead, so we have a good idea of their kit, especially a large number of distinctive conical shield bosses. I'll include links to a couple of galleries of Peshevosk artifacts in the show notes. Houses in these villages were generally made of wood, with turf or thatched roofs, and generally two-roomed. 
Some of them were half-sunk construction, with the middle of the house being excavated down about two or three feet and then lined with timbers. Similar construction would be found in Anglo-Saxon Britain 400 years later. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The majority of the population spent their time growing and preparing food. Vandals and other German tribes grew a mix of cereal grains, vegetables, and pulses like broad beans. Like most humans through most of human history, cereals were the central pillar of the German diet. Cows and pigs could be kept in the woodlands, and sheep provided wool. I feel like it can be hard for modern people who have been raised in general prosperity to really grasp how tenuous life based on subsistence agriculture was and is. A single bad harvest or an outbreak of disease among the livestock could mean slow starvation. To take an example from a later period where we have better numbers, a farmer in 14th century England could expect every grain of wheat he planted to yield four grains when it was harvested. One of those grains would have to be held back for the next harvest, which leaves you three to feed your family and last the whole year. And maybe, if some is left over, sell it or trade it. By comparison, a modern farmer can expect a return of 26 grains to every one planted. It took very little to disrupt food production and trigger famine. Bad weather, just bad luck, could reduce that yield from four grains to two, or, gods forbid, none. So it shouldn't be that surprising that the massive dislocations that followed the arrivals of the Huns would be enough to stoke fear of starvation and the resulting migration and desperate behavior. Just by way of contrast, by the way, and to indicate how different the two tribes were, I'll give a quick sketch of the Elans, especially since there won't be much chance later. Just by way of contrast, and to highlight the diversity of peoples that were being pushed around by the Huns' invasion, I'll talk a little bit about the Elans. And also, to give you an idea of how different the two peoples were, the Elans had been one of many pastoral tribes that occupied the steppes between the Black and Caspian Seas, possibly all the way over to the Aral Sea. Much like the Huns, there is evidence that the Elans had dealings with the Chinese early in their history, called the Yang Kai. That connection is actually firmer than the Hun Xiongnu connection that we talked about. The Elans are first mentioned in Roman sources in the 1st century CE and frequently raided the Caucasian provinces of both the Roman and Persian empires. They never really formed a cohesive group, though they were clearly numerous and appear just about everywhere throughout the 4th and 5th centuries. Elan tribes, like the Huns and other steppe peoples, were semi-nomadic and lived alongside their herds of sheep, cattle, and horses in wagons covered with birch bark. Ammianus Marcellinus spent some time describing the Elans like so. Quote, they drive before them their flocks and herds to their pasturage, and are especially careful of their horses. The young men think it beneath their dignity to walk. They are all trained by careful discipline of various sorts to become skillful warriors. Nearly all of the Elan men are of great stature and beauty. Their hair is somewhat yellow, their eyes are terribly fierce. The lightness of their armor renders them rapid in their movements, and they are in every respect equal to the Huns, only more civilized in their food and manner of life. Danger and war are a pleasure to the Alans, and among them that man is called happy who has lost his life in battle. End quote. The Alans would end up being the only non-Germanic people to make lasting settlements in Western Europe during the migration period, and archaeological finds related to them have been found in... France and in Spain. 
Some of the skulls found indicate that the Elans, like the Huns, sometimes practiced skull elongation. Yet Ammianus describes them as big and beautiful, so there goes my theory that it was the weird heads that made the Huns different. Scarification's still on the menu, I guess. Good thing none of this is recorded. I would look like a huge idiot. That these two peoples, the Vandals and the Elans, managed to hang together for as long as they ultimately did, and accomplish as much as they ultimately did, is to me remarkable. In the next episode, the Vandals will reach their full true potential under their cunning, driven, cruel, and brilliant king, Gaiseric, as they do what no barbarian group had yet managed to do found an independent kingdom within the Roman Empire. I find the Vandals the most intriguing of the tribes we've covered so far, probably because their accomplishments are so great, and yet we know comparatively little about them. I was only able to find one book-length work on the Vandals in English, and I'll be frank, a lot of padding was needed to make it book-length. In fact, there's a lot of good stuff about the economics of late antiquity, which I'll probably end up using later. If anyone knows of any others, feel free to drop me a line. Seriously. I can be reached at darkagespod at gmail.com or on Facebook, Dark Ages Podcast, and Twitter and Instagram at darkagespod. Let me know about good books you're reading, or thoughts on the latest episode, or whatever your social media heart desires. Seriously, my need for feedback and validation is quite pathetic when witnessed in person. You can also encourage my unhealthy obsessions by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or simply by subscribing there or wherever you get your internet-based infotainment. That's such an awful word, isn't it? Infotainment? All right, now I am rambling. So, until next time, take care. Oh, and the book is called A History of the Vandals by Torsten Cumberland Jacobson, by the way. Just in case you're interested. (laughs) 